Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest edition of the Haskincast podcast. I believe this is episode 26, if I'm not mistaken, and we are really flying now. I want to take a moment and thank all of you guys for the support, uh, all of the people that have talked to me or written to me personally and talked about how much they enjoy the show, how much they've learned from it. Um, how much it means to them, that means a ton to me. Uh, and those of you who've, uh, you know, emailed me or uh, sent me messages on Facebook or wherever, uh, that means a lot. And then, of course, those that have, uh, you know, put a rating on the show or subscribe to the podcast, uh, that's, it. you know, it's good to know that the things that I'm spending my time doing are reaching people. Uh, it's, you know, as a, a solo artist, in any form, a lot of times you really don't know how you're affecting people. And this is something that my guest and I talked about a little bit today. But uh, recently, uh, as I've been reaching out to different people, they've said to me things like, I fall asleep with your music every night, or, you know, I, uh, my uh, child was having a hard time sleeping, and I put on some mental sauna, and now they just drift right off. Those kind of things mean so much to an artist, because if we are just putting out content and we're not seeing any kind of result or feedback, and I'm not talking about financially, I'm just talking about knowing that our work is touching someone, that it means something to somebody. Uh, It can get really, really, I don't want to say depressing because as a creative, I think that most true creatives will just keep creating no matter what. And I could be 95 years old, putting out my 170th album, and have sold a thousand copies in my lifetime. And I would still be working on another album, because that's just what you do when you're a creative. You create. You're very incomplete if you're not doing that. And that's what people don't understand when they say, well, you need to take a vacation. You need to get away. I don't need to get away. I'm not suffering from anything. You know, the one thing that that I seem to lack is time. Uh, I've got more project ideas than I will be able to finish in my lifetime. And I keep coming up with more. And that's if I live to be 100. So it's interesting that the perspective that different people have. But my point is, for those of you who have supported me, for those of you who do enjoy what I do, whether you've told me or whether you haven't told me, Thank you. Thank you for taking time to listen, to check out my work, whether it be the podcast or Mental Sauna or my Horror Holidays stuff or any of my other work. Um, It really, really means a lot. And I'm going to keep doing it, but it's always better when I know people are enjoying what I'm doing. So speaking of reaching people and making a difference in people's lives, my guest today, Robin Cote, who I've known for quite some time now, is a very dear friend, a lovely, lovely woman who's been through a lot in her life. And it took an incredible amount of strength and courage, in my opinion, for her to write her book, Victim No More, which is available on Amazon, uh, both in paperback and Kindle, I found out. Um, This book is about a very, very tough story about a woman who was in a horrible relationship and the things that she went through with her child, with her self. Um, 
this all started at age 13. So it's at a time when you're very impressionable. You're still trying to understand who you are, let alone how relationships work and how the world works and what your feelings on religion and politics and, you know, just people in general and the world in general. It's such an impressionable time. And when I think about things like uh, cults or polygamy community, polygamous communities or things like that, it's so understandable why it's important to get to people when they're young. Because you can control their impression of how things should work. And it's so easy to manipulate somebody who's curious about the world and show them, oh, this is how it works, when it's really how you just want it to work for your own benefit. And it's sick and disgusting. And for some people, it's a mental issue. For some people, it is a control issue. For some people, it is uh, just what they get off on. But at the end of the day, it's wrong and it, you don't have a right to negatively impact someone, other, someone else's life as far as I'm concerned. Not that there aren't lessons that could be learned, but it's not up to you to decide somebody needs to learn a lesson. If they don't learn it from you, they'll learn it from somewhere else if they're meant to learn it, I believe. But this is something that tends to happen in society is whoever has the power, whoever has the control, will find people who are weaker, will find people who can be manipulated, who are young enough to not have that solid foundation for themselves yet. And, uh, and, and it can be for all kinds of reasons, depending on where they're from, what's happened to them. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that people wear, end up where they do. But in any case, to me, as a human being, it's not right to have that effect on somebody else. I think we should all be supportive. We should all learn from each other. We should all protect each other and uplift each other. And unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. It's just the world that I would like for us to live in. So anyway, I'm going to quit ranting and uh, bring on Robin. Uh, check out her book. I'll have all the links in the show notes, as always. And uh, the, this, this one actually was amazing because we talked uh, recording for two hours. And it was all really wonderful stuff. So while I just thought, okay, well, I'll get this episode in and then go to NAM, and I'll figure out what to do for the next episode. Um, actually, it just turned into uh, two hours long. And I didn't want to have a two hour long episode because all the content was good. And I know that's a long time to listen. And a lot of times, you know, you can bookmark things, but you're less likely to go back and listen to it than you would be if it was a shorter thing. So I'm actually going to break this into two episodes. And then in the meantime, I'll have gone to the NAM show in Anaheim and uh, I'll come back and do a wrap up on the NAM show after the second episode of Robin's podcast airs. Uh, that will give me a little time to get back, get settled and get that done. Because after NAM, there's also a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of people that you meet that you will get in contact with, a lot of follow-up that needs to happen, um, a lot of thank yous. It was great to, to meet you. Thanks for spending some time with me at the show. Um, you know, those kind of things that are are really important in relationship building. And this is uh, probably the biggest event that I go to every year now. Uh, when I lived in LA, I went to a lot of stuff, but now that I'm in Vegas, uh, going to NAM is probably the biggest. So it's really important to maximize the time there. And I, I'm only going to be at the show for a day and a half. So it's, it's a very tight, get to one place, get to another place. And as I'm looking at my list of people that I'm going to visit grow, um, and, uh, last episode I talked about Behringer. Unfortunately, they are not going to be at the show. They're doing something else. 
uh, on a day that I won't be there. But uh, they have a place here that they're uh, moving to, so I'll connect with them at some other point. But there's all kinds of great companies. You know, I mentioned Isotope, uh, my friends Eduardo and Wolfgang, uh, BandLab, Eargasm, uh, Elixir Strings, uh, Tascam, Market the Unicorn, Oralex. I mean, there's so many companies that that I have uh, questions to ask or uh, things that I want to talk to them about. And uh, the list is just growing. And then there's the meetings that I've got set up as well with with other people. So uh, it's going to be a very, very tight, busy show. But because the so much of the contacts are very quick and brief, that follow-up is very, very vital. So I will hopefully have a show for you um, by Saturday after Robin's second uh, podcast airs. Uh, it really shouldn't be a problem to do that. And uh, I don't want to wait too long because then things start to get fuzzy and, and all that. But uh, anyway, enjoy this interview with Robin. The first episode mainly focuses on the book and uh, and her life and those kind of things. And then the second part focuses a lot on her career in late in radio, uh, some of the people that she's interviewed. We talk about Ted McKenna, who who just recently passed away, which, um, you know, I'm not I, I don't usually get affected by by death, especially if it's people that I don't know or that I'm only you know familiar with. But in this case, uh, it was a big deal because Ted was a, a pretty big in. So uh, that had a bit of an impact. Uh, he played drums for Michael Schenker and did a bunch of other stuff, including some solo work. Uh, but I finally got to see him play last year when he was here with uh, for the Michael Schenker Fest show, which was just an amazing night. But I'm glad I actually got to see him play before he passed away. A lot of the people that have had an impact on me, um, I, I haven't had the chance or may not get the chance to see. So that was a pretty big event and uh, sad to see him go. But I will go and continue to enjoy the things that he was a part of creating until I'm not here anymore. Uh, or maybe beyond, because who knows what happens after that. But that's a whole other topic. Uh, anyway, so we talk about Ted because she had interviewed him at one point uh, some time ago. And, uh, you know, we talk about some other stuff that she's done that uh, you probably wouldn't have guessed. So let's, uh, let's start our chat with Robin and see where it goes. All right, let's welcome Robin to the show. Robin, how are you doing today? Doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It is so good to hear your voice. We do not get to contact each other nearly enough. No, we don't. Well, you're really busy, and I'm really busy, and that, you know, adds a good challenge. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes we make ourselves a little too busy, and we got to take time to stop and smell the roses and catch up with our friends that we love and adore. That is an excellent point. An excellent point. And I take responsibility for not doing that more often. Well, you and me both, honey. It just gets life, <laughs> life gets away with us. Sometimes you need 28 hours instead of 24. Yes. If I could just get rid of those last four or five hours of sleep, then I think I could accomplish a ton more. Oh, don't say that because we need sleep. The brain gets deprived. Well, wait a minute. That's usually the creative period, isn't it? It is, yeah. But but I think that part of that is because it's a time that we know we're less likely to get interrupted. So we can just allow ourselves to uh, kind of melt into that that creative time uh, because we're probably not going to get texts. We're probably not going to get calls at three o'clock in the morning. Most people aren't going to be emailing us, uh, emailing us unless you work with people around the world like I do. Um, but it's kind of a time that you can say, okay, the world is quiet. I can just get in my zone and do my thing without worrying. 
Yeah, sometimes. But, you know, us creative folk like to answer phones or look at our phones. And with me, I'm always helping everybody out. So sometimes this phone does vibrate on the bed and wake me up at three in the morning and Mm got to go rescue somebody. And I try, I tell myself, okay, I'm just going to turn the phone off. Like I'm actually going to power it down and work for two hours, but even at three in the morning, but what if somebody needs something? And I tend to not do it, even though I know it's, it's healthier for me to, to lock myself away for a little while. And I certainly have the right to do it, but I don't. You know, think about 20 years ago when we didn't have these invasive little devices called a cell phone. Things were so much different. I mean, if anything, you're going to sneak out at a Denny's overnight and go have coffee with somebody. But now uh, this little thing just lays beside my pillow every night and Mm -hmm. it's so invasive in my life. Yep. And it's become my everything. It becomes my alarm. It becomes my scheduler. Like I do everything with it now. And I kind of feel like, I I mean, I see people that constantly have it in their hands and I don't think that you could claw it away from them, but I don't think I'm to that point, but I do feel like I've become a slave to that and the internet. I think that's just the way that modern technology exists in our lives because everything revolves around it. And Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, especially in the industries that we it's all part of it. You have to have that exposure. You have to have the social media. You have to have your recording devices right there on the internet or on your computer. So there's always something that we have to have that's part of the new technology that we're dealing with. That's very true. And I often wonder if I wasn't a business, if I didn't have a product that I was trying to you know, let people know about in the hopes that they'll connect with it, how much would I really be on the internet? I think back to when, when, you know, I first had AOL back in the old days when we were in Windows 3.1 and you would get, what was it like uh, 10 hours a week, I think was what you were allowed to be on the internet. And I, oh, you know, wow. it was, it was so limiting if you had, if you didn't have like an unlimited plan, which was ridiculously expensive at the time. And this is, you know, dial up modem days where if somebody picked up the phone and you were online, it cut you off, you know, um, how much would I really be on now if I wasn't a person who was was trying to promote a product? And, and you know, how, do you think that if you weren't in entertainment that you would be on as much as you are? Probably not. I would actually have a life outside of technology. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's difficult because you know how it is when you're doing something. Social media is how you promote yourself. And even in the studio, I have to have my phone turned down, no volume, because we're recording shows. So the thing about it is, is I communicate with people via text, whether it's family, friends, or even my boss that's sitting behind the glass wall. He can't come in and interrupt a show. He's got to communicate with me. Oh, there's something going on. So he'll text me. Right. So, I mean, it, it is vital to some things, but it is a nuisance in a lot of ways. I would agree. And I, and I do the same thing if I'm running audio in a theater and I, depending on the setup of the theater, I might be up in a, a recording booth or, or a sound booth and the stage is at the bottom of the stairs. I don't have access to run down there during the show. So I'll usually text whoever the backstage hand is and go, hey, it sounds like this person's mic is off. Can you check it or whatever? Um, so even even in the course of business now, it's become a, a really helpful tool, but I definitely do feel chained to it. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's worse. I hate. To, I even hate to do this, but it's worse than a ball and chain like marriage. <laughs> right. So that's just my reference because the M word is a bad word to me. I won't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't blame you after your experiences. Uh, well, you and I actually met um, through the Phoenix Independent Filmmakers Group when I obviously years ago when I lived there. I think we decided it was what two thousand seven or so. And, yeah. uh, it was, it was so great to work on those little projects. You know, we would do short five minute, 10 minute films, do a lot of 48 hour film challenges. Um, what was your main role when you were working on films back then? Well, I had been in and out of the industry for many years and, uh, you know, I was running a company with my ex-husband and I was bored because I was staying at home all the time. I, I'm an entertainment person. I like to get out and do things. So the only way to get back into the industry, because I really wanted to go behind the scenes, but you had to be an actor. That's always the first throwback. You go in, you be an actor. So I got back into acting after many years of not doing acting. And that's how I managed to meet you as I was becoming an actor once again to work on all these little independent films in the Valley. Right. Yeah. Was there a particular discipline that you would have preferred because you really wanted to do the behind the scenes stuff? What was it that you were working towards? I'm more the technical kind of person. Working in radio most of my life, I was more of the background and I didn't like to be on camera. So I chose radio over television and that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn about the editing. I wanted to learn about, you know, being able to sync up audio and video because being an audio person, that was kind of like something I could do. I wanted to learn how to do, you know, put special effects stuff together because that to me was really cool when they started coming out with all the technology where you could add lightning bolts and smoke and all this weird stuff in a film that you didn't have to actually re create right there as it was happening because it was too dangerous and most people can't afford to blow stuff up right. so i wanted to that was my big thing and i wanted to learn animation i never got that far but you know it's fun to die on on film i've been killed so many times on film so i <laughs> and that that's the craziest thing people look at you and go what do you mean you die on film it's like dude how many times do you get shot have your you know have someone slit your throat uh, stab you, uh, zombie you. I mean, I've been a zombie so many freaking times. It's crazy, but it's, <laughs> it, it's the weirdest thing. I, you know, I wanted to do the behind the scenes stuff and eventually I did, but it was still fun to do the other crazy stuff as well. Sure. Because how often do you get to do that? And, and, you know, especially, uh, I remember, remember meeting somebody early on who said they, they were, I don't know why they were telling me all of the stuff that they had done because as a composer, like I'm not a director, I'm not going to hire you, but they told me that they <laughs> took dying classes. And at the first time, the first said it, I really didn't understand what they meant, but there are actually classes that you can take on proper ways to die in different circumstances, you know, depending on what the scenario is. And I thought that's some good dedication though, that you don't wow. just assume that you can do it or don't just say, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And then if you don't like what I do, director, just tell me. I mean, they actually went out of their way to learn techniques, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. But thank you for, for caring about syncing up video and audio because it is so, <laughs> it's, it's, it just like grips my adrenal glands and crushes them whenever I look at a YouTube video and it's off sync. Oh, well, even worse. How about going to a motion picture and seeing that something is a little out of sync? Mm. Yeah, I hate that. 
when you work behind that, that's the worst thing about it though. When you work behind the scenes and you create movie magic, it is the most irritating thing because you have to stop yourself. I used to sit and watch these movies because I'm a big, you know, blow them up, die hard kind of person. I want to see some action stuff. And then when you get into the dialogue and you see that somebody has, it's like a hair of a beat that's off and you can see it in the lips when someone's talking. Oh, I, I get frustrated. So I've had to learn how to pull back from that as a film editor and not allow myself to get drawn into that going, man, that's how much money did you make editing that film? Right. You're, a, you're, you're a credited editor. That's what ACE stands for. A-C-E, accredited editor. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, how come I'm not making your kind of money when I'm sitting here looking at how bad you just did that? And I can see it. Right. And that's, that's how it gets frustrating. So you know what I'm talking about when someone does the audio score or even the foley in a movie. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can see that when it's a hair off and it's like frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, some of them can be really challenging. I had to do some sound design on a film where they were dropping uh, sprinkles of sugar onto uh, a bowl of berries. And what? To, to nail the sound design, the timing of what I was doing was that was probably the most challenging thing that I've done in film was that one scene. And it was a cutaway. So it was very quick. And, uh, and I, that probably took me half a day to get that to the point where I was actually comfortable with the timing of everything, but I was down to the frame, you know, where I was, I was matching it frame to frame and, uh, yeah, it's tough, but if you really care about what you're putting out, what you're associating with your name, what the audience is going to see, what they're going to think of the film and all the people involved, you want it to be the absolute best it can be. And you know, the next time I see somebody pouring sugar on berries, I'm really going to take that to heart because that's <laughs> like, I'm like, really? You had to have sound design for that? That is such an intricate thing right there to even think about something that lasts a matter of a, a millisecond. Yeah. Yeah, oh it really God. is. Because how are you? I mean, that's such a, a delicate, uh, faint sound that your your mic is probably not going to capture anywhere near what that would sound like. No, unless you dump a whole bag of sugar on it, then you know what it sounds like. Well, yeah, but then, then that sounds more like uh, rushing water as it, as it comes out of the, you know, the, the paper bag. Uh, but yeah, that was a good challenge. And I remember one of the challenges I did with Phoenix Independent Filmmakers Group. I could never say that. That's why Piffin we started calling it Piffimga. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I remember it was the objective and Joe Holt called me up at like three in the morning and he said, do you have the sound of a bullet hitting a metal clipboard? Well, Ooh. yeah. Who doesn't have that in their library? <laughs> you know? So I ended up uh, grabbing a, a, a water pot and just hitting it with a, a butter knife and recording it and giving him a couple of different versions because I, who knows what that would even sound like. Wow. You know, because we didn't have the money to get a gun and a, cl- a metal clipboard and go shoot it and record it and all that. We had very limited equipment at the time. And uh, but, you know, that's that's what you do, especially in Foley, is you find ways to make the sound that make you think you're hearing the sound when that's not really what it is. And I love looking at the or listening to the behind the scenes stuff when you get the DVDs of a film and they actually talk about that. They go into depth about the Foley and how they show they how they recreate the sound. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because it's not what you even think it is. Right. And there's a, a video that came out back in the 80s called Hardware Wars. And it was a Star Wars parody. And on it was a split screen on one screen. You saw the movie. And then on the other screen, you saw the guys making all the sounds. 
And uh, I mean, it's, it's not how it's really done because everything's done, you know, a step at a time, but they did it all live. And it was the first thing that I saw, and I was pretty young when I saw it, that really made me understand what goes into that side of the business. So I had a pretty early appreciation for it. That's so cool. In fact, uh, breaking pasta, cabbage, and I can't, lettuce are, are some of the most common things that you hear in film, especially in action films. And you don't realize that that's what you're really hearing. Wow. Now, now I'm going to have to go out and find that movie so I can see it. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. It's just like five minute video or something. It's pretty short, but oh, it's really, and it, okay. it was like, uh, you know, uh, kitchen appliances were the ships and, and things like that. It was, it was a neat concept. Um, Very cool. But you mentioned being a, a diehard action person. And since you said diehard and we're talking about this in, I think it was, was it diehard four was the one with Justin Long and Kevin Smith? I think so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. There's a scene where he's walking behind Bruce Willis and his mouth is moving, but there's no sound. Oh, Oh, even on a big movie like that. Yep. And you know, the thing is, is you know how it works as an editor. You see that film, what, five, 600 times. Oh God, you're so sick of seeing it by the time it's done. Well, yeah, but your brain just shuts off a lot of things. If you're looking for one thing, you're not seeing everything else that's going on because your brain goes, right. I know what's happening. I don't need to pay attention. It's like the reason you don't, you know, proofread your own term papers, right? Because you already know what you said. So it happens in film and even in some of the biggest budgeted, you know, most famous films, there's stuff like that all over the place. Oh God. It even happens when you're writing your own book too, by the time you're done editing and re-editing and looking at it, you're so sick of it. So I t- yeah. the whole transition between a book and a movie is pretty much the same. Well, and, and I think in your case, that must've been even more difficult because your book, uh, my life victim, no more, the ugly truth exposed. The, t- the titles actually changed. Oh, the it second has. Version, yeah. The sec- we re-released the second version last year and shortened it to victim no more. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay, so I have a I have a rare copy. You have one of the older copies. You yes. have the first edition. And this we released the second edition uh October 2015 or October 2015 was the first edition and <laughs> I got that backwards. And the second edition was released just last year and it was around the same time October 2018, so 3 okay. years later. Wow. So it's just been uh not really that long since the last version has been out. No, I'm just changed the cover design a little bit and changed the title just to shorten it up to, uh, you know, just to put it out there in a different form. And I added a few extra things to it as well, just to kind of, I don't know, to give it a little bit more spice and to see if we could generate more interest in it. Because being a self-published author is very difficult. It is. It really is. And, you know, I've got three books out there that, yeah, there's there's no company backing them. There's nobody promoting them but me and then anyone who shares that on social media. But you have had a lot of people that have been very supportive. I've seen a lot of posts where your book has been shared. uh, And I love that because it's such a powerful and inspiring story. But as you said, you know, you're reading it over and over and over again. And uh, was it was it hard to relive it every time that you read it? Or did you kind of disconnect from the emotion of the story at one point as you were going through the editing process? Well, I'll even give you the inside before then. When I started writing this in 2014, it was to clear the record with a lot of things and to help my daughter see the truth. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, is when I wrote it, 
and I was working on it, I was realizing that the current marriage I was in was extremely toxic. And I was in yet a verbally abusive relationship. The first one that this book is based on was just more verbal and sexual and a little physical. Mm -hmm. And the one I was, the marriage I was in when I wrote the book was very verbal, abusive and very toxic. And I was so blinded to that. I didn't see it until I started writing this book. And you just kind of peel open the wounds. And I remember every day working on that book and my ex-husband would be in the house with me and he'd come home from work and he would start in. And I would tell him, look, Joe, you need to understand something. You are kicking the dog right now. I am writing this book. It's making me so raw. My emotions are so raw. Don't kick the dog. Don't keep kicking the dog every day because eventually that dog's going to bite you back. Right. And I, I woke up to my own reality. So it was healing in that point. But then when I started going through the process of finishing it, because it started as actually a blog. And then when I finished the blogging of it, everyone was encouraging me to put it into book form and put it out as a book. So I restructured the blog into the book, added some stuff, combined paragraphs into chapters. And then you know, the formatting and all that's a nightmare. But when you're sitting there and you're going through it over and over and over, you're reliving what happened. And yeah, it was extremely emotional and gut-wrenching at times. But like when I talk to people about this, I tell them all the time, remember, it only happened once. This is something that already happened to you and it cannot hurt you again it is something that's it's all part of a ptsd thing where you're reliving it but you have to remember that it's already happened and it can't happen to you again so you have to take your mind out of it and say okay let's just look at it from a different perspective it's almost like you're you're removing yourself from your body and you're able to look down on something that happened you're watching the film of your life but you're not in that film reliving your life. And it is a difficult task. It really is. And it it scares the hell out of you because when you're facing this and you're putting it down on paper, you're getting it out. But then when you're rereading it, you're going, I can't believe I went through all this. Right. And that that's where I kept coming from. And, you know, I would cry. I would get pissed off. I, I would sit there and go, what's wrong with you? Why did you do this? Why did you why did you allow this to happen to you? You know, you you really beat yourself up about it because you don't understand as an adult and the age that I am now, because this is stuff that started happening when I was 13, all the way up until, you know, I started writing the book. So you're talking over a 30 year period of time and everything that's already happened has made me a different person. But yet I'm looking back on this going, I don't even recognize that person. I know that was me, but how could I let that person do that to me? And it, it's a very rude awakening. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a tough, tough process to write a book about any type of trauma you go through. But I'm telling you, Scott, it was the best damn thing I ever did because it saved, it literally saved me from the hell I've been living with this guy for 11 years. And didn't realize that the pattern had repeated and you put yourself in another relationship and didn't see this, you know, you, you found the strength to get out of the first one yeah. and then ended up in another one that was a different kind of abuse, but you weren't identifying it that way, maybe because it wasn't physical. 
right. it didn't seem as dramatic because what you had gone through might have seemed worse because you had physical bruises versus emotional ones. I think we tend to do that. If we don't see physical trauma on someone else, we're less likely to believe that what they're saying really happened, or maybe it's not as bad. They're embellishing the story. But when you've got a bruise or a cut, it's it's very obvious that there, that something happened. Um, yeah. But we need to remember that there's so much more that's damaging from an emotional side, how deep rooted those things become in our belief system, in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world. Uh, we have to look at that just as importantly as anything that's damaging to our, our physical body. You got that right. Absolutely. Because it is extremely damaging for someone to, I mean, think about it. When I first started that first relationship, I was 13 years old. So I didn't have the, the, the most strongest parental unit and my parents are still together, but they weren't the strongest parental unit and they didn't give me the insight that I could have used to pull myself out of all of that and, and to be a smarter person. I had to learn all that at a very young age and I didn't even realize the emotional warfare I was being set up for as a child going into my young adulthood. And then here I am again being put back in that same position. And I wasn't even aware because I, I distracted myself with things in daily life. I was in a point where I left my career, my successful career after 30 years to go into business with my ex-husband and I took myself away from the whole entire gamut of what I was used to. And I I actually trapped myself with that marriage, mm -hmm. running this business and having everything rely on that business financially with him. And when I wrote the book, you know, it, it just woke me up to it. It's like, you know what? I cannot stand out on a stage and promote what I am promoting about not being a victim, but being a victor. How can I promote that if I'm still stuck in this victim area, if I'm in this victim mentality, that's a no-go for me. So I got to get out of this. And he did something illegal, which pushed me to move. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to go to jail for what you did. That's on you. I'm finished. I'm walking out. I walked away from everything. And that's what most people are afraid to do. They're afraid to leave their life behind and start over with nothing. But in a sense, Starting over with nothing is the best place you want to be because you have you back and that is worth more than its weight in gold. But do you think that most people really realize that? It's, no. It seems like we, and you can even take this in a job situation, you know, people get a job when they're young and it's with, let's say an office or, or they start as an intern in a law firm or whatever. And they, they're like, well, you know, this is good for now, but eventually I want to do this. So this was, was my goal from the beginning. And then two, three years, they've been promoted a couple of times. They've gotten some raises. And the next thing you know, they go, well, yeah, I really don't like this, but I can't leave and go make the money I, I do now. And I'm not willing to take that hit. So I'm just going to stay where it's comfortable. And they just end up living a, a fairly average life. You know, they go to work every day. They're like, yeah, you know, this is where I work. And then they come home and they watch a movie, dinner, whatever, and their lives are not fulfilling. I think a lot of people are just afraid to hit that reset button because they don't want to go through that period of rebuilding. You're exactly right. It is a huge thing for you to even think about that. So many people are fearful of it. And even me, when I walked away from this, I shut the company down. I couldn't sell it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't worth anything without either one of us. I had to sell the house. So then I put that money away in savings and I walked away from a very lucrative business that we built together. And there's just no way I could stay with him with knowing what I knew now. If I had stayed with him, then I would run the risk of going to prison for something he did. And he didn't even care. And he didn't care what what it did to us. And I walked away from that three and a half years ago. And the first thing I did was move in with my elderly parents and start taking care of them. And I was out of work for two years. And I just started back working again in an industry that I absolutely love and adore. And it does take time. And I tried my hand. I tried my hand at being a motivational speaker. I tried my hand with being the author. But the problem with this book, I can't, in my heart of hearts, in my soul, I literally cannot be a carnival barker and go out there and sell this book. If I gave away 400 copies of this book right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And I car- I always carry copies with me. And I give them away when I know that somebody needs to read it. Yeah. It, it, it. There's just something about it. I don't necessarily feel the need to go out there and try to sell it. If it sells, it sells. It goes to the people that need to see it because – The biggest thing about that book, it's very cathartic for me to put it out there, but it also, I want it to inspire other people to not be afraid of what's out there, to not be afraid of what's inside them, to not be afraid to step up and tell your story, because you're not only going to heal yourself by getting that garbage out of your system, but you just really have no idea how you're going to touch somebody else out there that might need to hear that message. That's so true. And that's, it's part of that, that amazing heart that you have that allows you to see things that way. I mean, yeah, when we put products out there, of course, we want them to be successful. We want them to be profitable. Um, We want that to be the thing that we do. I just wrote this book. It's very emotional. I want to go out there and I want to show people, I want to give speeches. I want to be a motivational speaker. I want to do book tours and really see how many people I can touch directly because how are people finding this book if I'm not out there promoting it? That's big. But giving away those copies, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people did reviews and that ranks you up in Amazon a little bit more, hopefully get you a little more uh, attention so that people will buy it. But there is that fine line between being, and and in this case, I'm still going to categorize you as a creative for (laughs) for the purpose of the book, because I think that it, it still falls under that same category, even though it's a true story. Um, there's still that I want my creation to touch people. I want it to mean something. I want it to have value. And if I can change lives with it, that's the real reason I did it. And that goes above the sales and, and all of that. Well, well, I will tell you this. The biggest mistake I made was... I had a party because I I had a triple threat party, a book release, a divorce, and a birthday party all in one. Mm. I invited a lot of people that I thought were good friends. There were a handful of those people that I consider, you know, good friends. They came. I spent a lot of money on this party. And I was hoping that a lot of these people would have written reviews for me. And you were one of the only people that wrote a review. Um, there was maybe two other people that wrote reviews. Really? But 
Yeah. The, the, the sad part of this is there were a lot of people and, and the hardest part, I actually, when I write in the front of my books, when I sign them, I actually sign like a, it's pretty much an entire page of me writing something very personal. Right. I, I found out several of these people and I don't know who they were because I don't have any idea what copies went, mm-hmm. but a lot of people put these up on eBay and Amazon to resell. Really? And it, that broke my heart, but it also taught me a very valuable lesson that when I'm working on five other books right now, so when the next few books get released, when these people come forward and ask for their free copies, I'm not going to be giving them away. There's only going to be a small select handful of people. And, you know, we work with some amazing people in this industry, Scott, and Diane Dresbach, mm-hmm. who you, you know, and a few other people who are authors told me straight up, don't be giving all your books away. If your friends want books, have your friends buy your books because they're not that expensive and they're supporting you. Right. So to me, the people who were there for me that did the reviews, that gave me the support, they put the post out and shared it everywhere. Those are the guys that I'm going to give the free books to because they're the ones that love and adore me. They're the ones that are, they understand the work commitment. They understand that you help each other because that's what we do. We share each other's work and we put it out there on our networks. Mm -hmm. But when I sit back and I see that a lot of people put these books up on Amazon for sale, I'm like, why would you do that? These were personally autographed to you with a personal message. Think about the buyer's side of it too. Uh, hey, I just bought this used book, and then there, you know, you open it up, and there's a very personal inscription. How do you feel yeah. as the buyer having someone's copy that you know, obviously, you really cared about that person? But Diane, yeah. Diane was a guest on the show uh, back in December, I think it was, promoting her new book, and uh, yeah, she's very intelligent, very sweet. Uh, I, I love, love Diane. Death. Yeah, she's amazing. But I. I think the thing is, and I would not have expected this either, but I have a lot of friends who are authors and several of them are like USA Today bestselling authors. And I've gotten a lot of advice from them. If you get one review out of 10 or 15 free products, you're actually doing good. Right. When it comes to your friends, yeah, they're your friends and they want to support you. But when it comes to taking action, it's a whole different thing. How long does it take to click and put a star rating on Amazon? What, two, three seconds, you know, right. or write it, write a quick review is a minute of your life to do for a friend. And if, especially if it's something that you really connect with, like this material, I've never been in a position like you've been in, but I can see how much this would help somebody who has been. And so as soon as I finished reading the book, I immediately jumped on Amazon and I wanted to let people know about it because it is an important work of art for people to experience and also for people that might be the abusers in the world can benefit yeah. from reading this book. Of course, they're not going to admit that they're abusers because right. you know, a, you can't tell a narcissist that they're less than perfect. Right. 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 And the thing you've read the book and the thing about the book is it doesn't just cover domestic abuse. It mm-hmm. covers bullying. It yeah. covers a lot of death. It covers losing a child. It covers a lot of different ground that across the board, anybody who's been through any of these types of situations can can relate to it. And I'm going to tell you something. The biggest reason why I don't really care about all the other stuff, about the book sales, about the people who didn't do the reviews, 
was recently I had a mutual friend who introduced me to a, a lady by the name of Audra. And I just met this young woman a couple weeks ago. And Scott, let me tell you something. She's writing a book about her life. And like I always tell everyone, yeah, I've gone through a lot of stuff, but there's always somebody that's gone through worse than I have. And that's what keeps my head level and grounded because I know there's always people that have gone through worse than I have and they've come out the other side a better person. But when I met this woman, Audra, she was telling me her story. She's in the middle of writing her book. She was struggling with one of the chapters that is very painful and gut-wrenching to her that happened when she was a young child. But the fact that, you know, and, and she told me, she said a lot of her friends were telling her, then don't write it. You need to stop doing that. I looked at her and I said, okay, well, let me tell you something. Screw that. You know, screw that. These are your friends. If they, if they can't understand this is how you need to work it out of your system, then don't listen to them. And I'm going to tell you that I understand that situation you're talking about that you can't write about right now because it's very painful. I said, let me tell you what happened to me. It's in my book. And she realized that there's somebody else for once that could relate to what she went through. Not the exact same experience, but the same type of experience and the same type of things, the emotions that it leaves us with, the garbage that we have tucked down inside. And I just printed out her copy of her book. She she contacted me a couple of days ago and said, I was able to make it through that chapter that was so hard because of that conversation that we had. She goes, I wasn't sure I could do it, but you helped me do it. That's why I do what I do, because it's so important to let someone know. I'm getting all emotional. It's important to let them know. I love that story. And I'll tell you, the thing is, is that we talked a little bit about this before the show, is that you never know how you're going to affect somebody's life. And if you're doing things that are true to your heart, And putting the things in there that your intuition is telling you to put in there, no matter how hard it is to dig through and push through to get those things on the page, those are the things that are probably going to make the biggest difference to the people that that will need to connect with it. And I'm so glad that you found the strength to power through and get some of those things in there and inspired someone else to do it. And then if you take that a step further... Who knows how that has changed her beyond just being able to release the book? Maybe there's other things that she'll realize that as as high of a mountain as they are to climb, she'll be able to find the strength to climb them or encourage somebody else to do because you showed her how to do that. It's funny that you should say that because her book is called Moving Mountains. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, she's amazing. And the thing is, is I feel like I've known this woman for, I mean, I feel like I'm connected with her soul wise. And it's not the first time I've been able to connect with someone like this, because when you, when you start, when I started speaking on stages after publishing the book, the first go around, you have women that come up in the shadows and they thank you, but they're not ready to come out of the shadows just yet. Mm -hmm. So I have them lurking on on my social media, and they're not ready yet. But when they are, I'm there to throw the life preserver out. And that's the fact that this woman and I sat in a coffee shop for four and a half hours 
not long ago and just talk to one another, it was like, oh, wow. You know, I, it's mind blowing when you can reach that relatable thing between two people that have gone through such harsh, harsh circumstances. And she's gone through some pretty, pretty tough stuff too. And, you know, just to be able to hear somebody be elated that they got through something, right. you know, that, that's all the payment in the world I need. I, who needs to be an, a bestseller? If you're able to, I mean, she's now reading my book mm-hmm. and I'm starting to read, you know, hers is almost finished, but she, she did it a little bit differently than I did. She actually sat down and started writing in a book format. I did it as a blog. Right. So I was doing it piece by piece because if I had sit down and do it a regular, like the regular writers do, I don't know if I would have made it out of that so easily. It, it is a difficult process to put true to life things down on paper. And I wish I could invent stories and be, uh, you know, a Stephen King and, and put things down on, on a book that could make an incredible movie. But, you know, who's going to want to watch my movie because that's some pretty crazy stuff. And it just to be relatable to people, that's, that's the biggest gift of all is being able to understand that human nature is not always kind. And we have to learn to be kind to one another because even when you see someone who is homeless, we don't know what their story is. And a lot of times we're too afraid to find out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because it, it's too much trouble. You know, you, we, sure. I, I always use the analogy of Laura Ingalls and back in the days, uh, you know, when she was around, if her house had burned down the next morning, the entire town would have been out there cutting down trees, you know, plowing the, the land to rebuild another house for her. And nowadays you can't get somebody to help you move without buying them dinner or, or beer or whatever. It's just a completely different world. Now people can't be bothered most of the time, unless there's a benefit to them. And I tend to gravitate towards the people that see beyond that, like you. You put something out because A, you wanted to tell your story. You needed to get that out of your system. But B, you released it because you'd hoped that it would touch other people, that it would maybe open their eyes a little bit to their own situation and see things that they weren't admitting to themselves. And it it could not have been easy to go back and readmit to yourself all the things that you allowed to happen. And I have to say it that way because as difficult as it is, whether we realize it or not, and I mean, at 13, that, that's just a ridiculous time to be have, have that programming start, you know, right. to, to say that this is the way relationships are and this is the way that life is. So you better just get used to it, Cookie, you know. Uh, but at some point once you've seen enough of it and you realize I'm not happy like this, every day is another choice. But I think people tend to stay in what's comfortable. Again, going back to the job example, Mm -hmm. uh, it's scarier to leave this situation where I don't know what's going to happen every day. Even though I'm miserable, I know what my day is going to be like. I don't fear anything. Yeah, it sucks. I'm not anxious for him to come home from work but I know what it's going to be like. So there's no, you know, there's no dark areas in that. And the, the worst part about that, that people don't realize this was 
I developed in that last marriage that was so toxic when I was writing the book and coming to my awareness, I realized that what I was going through was creating a physical manifestation from being caught in this toxic cycle. And what I mean by that is my air was clear when he was gone during the daytime. The minute he walked through that door, I felt like a black cloud was over my head. Every night when we went to bed, I developed a cough. I had a horrible cough where I, I'm, not, I'm not a smoker. I've never had asthma. I've grown up out here. And I felt like I was hacking up a lung. And I didn't understand it. I went to the doctor. They checked me out. Nothing was wrong. I had one food allergy. They put me on a, um, you know, one of those little things that you put in your mouth for when you have asthma. Oh, the inhaler? Uh, the inhaler, right. And it still wasn't working. And the weirdest thing is that cough, I started recognizing when that cough would disappear and when it would be there. It was only there in his presence because I was in such close quarters with this negative, toxic environment when he was there. But all day long, I was fine. And I didn't take any medicine at all. But every night lying in that bed with him, I just developed this horrific cough. And some days were worse than others. And the minute I made that decision to walk away from that relationship, no matter what I was facing being on my own again at 48, I got rid of that cough. Right. And it was like, it was like the light bulb went off over the head. It's like, whoa, wait a second. I allowed this person to be in my life for longer than he should have been. I allowed all that negativity and toxicity to affect my environment. And the minute I no longer allowed that, everything changed. Right. Well, it's it's very common and we don't typically realize it because we think that something has invaded us, whether it's a virus or or whatever. But it's very common that we take the things that bother us and we turn them into physical ailments as a defense mechanism. And yes. obviously if you're hacking up a lung, he's not going to want to be, you know, all over you. And that's a, that was probably the best, you know, one of the best manifestations you could have created in that situation <laughs> because it kept him at a distance, which is exactly why that was what it turned into instead of, you know, your elbow hurting or neck pain or whatever, it became something that would repel him and keep you safer as long as you could be. Nice. I never thought of it, not in that respect. That's very cool. Well, I mean, I could be wrong, but that, that, no, I, I would, I would agree because, you know, just the thought of him touching me at that point was, he made me feel like I was nothing. And it, I allowed him to beat my self worth down and my self esteem. And it's like, that is, I fought so hard to become such a strong, independent, wonderful person. And I could walk into any room and feel confident. And he took that away from me. And I allowed him to take that away from me. I gave him that power. I love that you're saying it that way, because that's exactly what it is. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons that people don't get out of these situations is because they're not willing to admit to themselves that they, that they could have taken control and didn't because of their fear. I mean, I understand why they don't, but at the right. same point, and, and I, I, I'm basing this based on the fact that I've known a lot of people who have been in similar not to the extent that you were in, but, but very abusive relationships, whether they were verbal or physical. 
And that always seems to be, but I'm afraid, but if I do this, then he'll really get mad and I'm afraid of what he'll do. (sighs) You know, that seems to be a very common thing. And while I can understand that, are you willing to be miserable day after day after day instead of just cutting that cord and letting whatever that is going to happen that one time be that one time or set yourself up to be away from it so that he can't come back after you. Um, Right. But, but when you're in that situation and you don't see that there's an outside of the forest to, to your life, I can understand why people don't take that leap, but, but admitting it to yourself has to be the hardest part of all of it. Um, I think as you get older, you become more wiser. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's very true. And the thing I've realized is that it wasn't me that created the situation. This was a person, my last husband, this was a person who was fighting an identity crisis, who doesn't really understand who he is himself. And he never was able to seek out that answer. And even now, three years out of our marriage, he still has not done the soul searching he needs. I've already been to that place. I've already done my soul searching. I already know who I am and I'm proud to be the person I am. And I allowed him to change that part of me for 11 years, but I fought to get back to that person. And that's where I am today, but he still struggles today. And he still lives in this, I don't want to say imaginary world, But in my mind, that's what it is. He's pretending to be something he's not. And in the process, he projects all of this negativity onto the person he says he loves. And he shouldn't be with someone else until he figures this out for himself. That's why I tell people all the time, go ahead, say something because I'm single. Let me tell you, I would rather be single and be happy than be so miserable in a relationship with somebody where I lose myself. I can't do that. I've got to be myself. And I can't, I'm not an easy person to be around because I'm brutally honest. And people say they want honesty, Scott, you know that, but a lot of times they can't handle it. And I'm, I fought hard to get to where I am. And I never want to lose sight of that self-worth again. I've had too many friends take their lives because of their self-worth not being there. I I will never be in that position again where I allow someone to threaten my self-worth. Even if I get an inkling of that, I'm like, whoa, no, we are so finished with this. And I will walk away. I won't allow someone to threaten that self-worth ever again, because you have to be strong enough to understand who you are and what you're willing to accept. If someone crosses your boundaries, game over. Right. But I, I would disagree with you on how you view yourself. I think you're a very easy person to be around, <laughs> but it's a matter of being around the right people, people that you're in harmony yeah. with, or that you can find something uh, you know, like like this girl that you met, you might not have been in harmony with her because you guys are in completely different places, but you you found a way because you have that thing in common and you can talk and have an open discussion and then you right. become in harmony. So that's okay to not start off in harmony or be around people that you're not in harmony with. But when you find that core group of people, the people that value life the same way that you do, that even through different experiences have the same 
values as as human beings that you do have that big heart that you do and have that desire to want to make this a better place for people to be that's that's going to be a great time i mean you can disagree you can have open discussions but it's a place where you feel that you can speak your mind and have your opinion respected even when not everyone agrees with your perspective Right. Well, yeah, I think with me, <laughs> I'm surprised. I was waiting for the, the ball to drop on that one. I wasn't sure where you were going to go with oh. that. Disagreeing <laughs> with me. I'm like, uh-oh, what did I say? But, you know, I think with me, when I say that I'm a hard person to be around, I think it's because I can call you out on your crap. And I expect you to do the same thing with me. Mm-hmm. And I have, I do have a very wonderful tribe around me, including you, who will call me out if I need to be, who will give me the support that I need. And of course, I had to, when I got divorced three and a half years ago, I had to learn how to let people in and I had to learn how to cycle them out when they weren't the right people. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we go through all throughout our life. And people, you know, with me, I've lost so many people in my life. I buried 41 people within a, an 11-year period of time from the age of, you know, 23 to 34. Mm-hmm. And I'm not supposed to have that many people die on my life. None of us are until we reach that age of, what, 60, 70, then they all start dying off. Right, but yeah. But back then, it taught me so many different things about life. And I, you have to learn that, yeah, you can't just, I was always at the point, well, damn, I lost so many people that I gave a damn about. I'm going to keep this person in my life because I've known them for 20 years. But then 20 years later, you're looking at this going, okay, they're in a different place than I am. We have grown apart. I have to let that person go. I don't care if they've been in my life the longest and they've known me before I so-called became well-known. I have to let them go because they're holding me back and they're not the right person to have in my life at this time. And that's always hard. That's a hard thing to do, especially when you lose so many people or like if you have people that have been military brats growing up, they could never have friends long enough. You want to hang on to people because they mean something to you. But sometimes in life, you have to cycle them out because they're not part of your, they're not part of where you're at anymore. Like you said, if they don't vibrate at the same levels that you do, if they don't function the same way that you do in a lot of ways, and all they're doing is bringing you down and creating this massive negativity or toxicity, you have to filter them out. And maybe somewhere down the road, you'll be a different person and you can filter them back in. But a lot of times it just works out that you both go your separate ways. Well, I'm so glad that you said that because there's so many times I've heard people say things like, but I've known them for 20 years. Yeah, but are they the same person that they were 20 years ago? Are they someone that you still, if you met them today, would you want to be around them? And those are the kind of things that we really have to look at. If we want to be happy in our lives, we have to spend our time doing things that make us happy. We have to be around people that we support that support us. You know, I don't look at family as the people I'm related to. I look at family as the people that are there for me that I want to be there for. Right. You know, people that inspire me, that push me, that will call me out on, on things that I'm not thinking properly on, or maybe doing something I could be doing better at. Um, but there's that difference then between those people that, that are that group of people, but they really don't understand what we do. So they'll say things like, oh yeah, well you should probably find, 
you know, a backup job or, you know, in case music doesn't work out or yeah, you know, broadcasting that's in, in entertainment and it's a, it's a pretty crazy thing. So, you know, you should probably go to college and get a degree and these things that people mean well, because they want us to be happy and safe and secure. And they don't understand. It's not that we enjoy our job. This is our life. This is who we are, not what we do. There's a big yeah. difference when it comes to the, the fields that we've chosen. Or the fields that have chosen us. <laughs> ah, well said, yeah. <laughs> that's the key because this is something that's part of our lifeblood. It's our soul. It's in our veins. It runs through us, heart, mind, body, and soul. Mm-hmm. What can you do? I mean, you have to give into that. Right. Now, did you get to do any book tours like a, a Barnes & Noble or any kind of place where you were set up and able to do like a speech and an autograph signing? <laughs> uh, no. I actually decided I was going to hire people to do this the right way. Um, I hired someone to do PR for me, but that didn't last very long. And and we basically severed our contract because it wasn't the right steps that I needed to be taken. And then um, two friends of mine at the time, one is now deceased. The other one and I don't speak anymore. They both encouraged me to hire this gentleman as my manager. And he supposedly had connections in all the right places was supposed to be working on doing things, uh, supposedly had me booked on a TV show in California. It was supposed to be Ellen. Um, They didn't want me to do anything to promote myself because they wanted to break me on Ellen, was what he said. And three days before we were slated to go to California to be on the show, (laughs) he tells me that they canceled. And I said, why would they cancel? He said, because they said you're an internet ghost where this book is concerned as an author and they can't have you on the show. I said, well, that doesn't make any sense because you told me that um, I can't do any self-promotion on this book anywhere because they wanted to break me first. Right. Everything became so convoluted with this guy. He took me for 11 grand. And here's the sad part. He never was a legit person. He is now serving um, eight years in prison because he was involved in a scheme where he pretended to be a doctor and was injecting people. He had a, a laser facility and he was injecting people with Botox or something that was supposed to be Botox that wasn't. And somebody apparently reported him to a television station and the television station went under investigation. You know, they sent people in there and they busted him. And now he's serving eight years in prison. So, yeah. And, you know, you just learn. You learn sometimes that things don't always work out the way you want them to. So I never did get the book tours that he promised. I never got the HBO documentary he promised. I never got the Ellen debut. Of course, he was a con man. So, you know, you you learn. And I had these two women friends of mine that, that told me this guy was legit. I also had another female friend who supposedly checked into his military background and said he was a legit Navy SEAL, which turned out to be a fraud. So... You know, I trusted these people before I invested my money in him and I still got taken. So a lesson learned, you know, sometimes you just got to do things yourself. So, yeah. And it's a shame, but I love that you, that you went for it 
and you know, you can, yeah. and it's not over. You can always find other avenues and there may be, sure. you know, there, I would think that you are the kind of person that Ellen would want to have on her show because she does a lot of inspirational kind of stuff, you know? Um, but it, it, it's tough because every time that someone in this business is, has the potential to go somewhere, there's always sharks just, you know, swimming around waiting for that first drop of blood because they know it's coming. And, sure. uh, you know, I've been in that position myself and I learned kind of early on that, you know, especially when you're, when you're really struggling in the business and, you know, every little thing is, oh my God, finally, this is my break. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to work my stupid day job that I hate anymore. And I'm just going to be an artist now. And, and then it turns out not to be true or the contract falls through or never got the funding or somebody wasn't telling the truth or it was a scam from the beginning. Um, it really, really becomes a personal attack on us because it's, it's, again, it's who we are. This is taking our core soul and just shaking it around because you can. And right. I'm really glad that he got caught. And he, the thing about it is they wanted me to write a statement about what he did to me because he actually injected something in my spine and I, I asked the prosecutor, I, I, I said, well, tell me something. Um, is he going to get any extra added time or charges for what he did to me? And they're like, they're like, no. And I said, then why do you want me to write a statement to put him behind bars when you've already got 23 counts against him from the first set of victims that came forward? The second set of victims, their charges weren't added. And they came to me. And said, well, we understand that he was doing stuff with you because we found paperwork. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't, I'm not going to testify against him if he's not going to have charges on me. I said, he's a vindictive man. When he gets out of prison, he's going to come after me. Right. Yeah. I said, I don't want to be included in that. Yeah. You're, there's no reason to put yourself at risk if there's not a no. potential benefit. I mean, if it would no. have been the difference of, well, when we add the second group on, we're going for a life sentence. Well, then that might be something to talk about. But if it's just, right. we just want more and more and more people to testify, you've got enough. No, you know? no. And my, my thing, I looked at it this way. Karma always comes back. He is a repeat offender because he had clinics in the past where he ripped off people and injected bad stuff or didn't injected fake stuff. And the fact is he got caught this time because some woman went on camera hidden in the shadows I have no idea. It was all my friends are like, isn't that your manager? Isn't that your manager? He's on television right now in an expose. I'm like, holy cow. And I started watching the reports that this reporter was doing. And the one guy he damaged, the one guy was the big testifier against him. And I'm just like, okay, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, I lost 11 grand and you were a fraud to me. You were a con man. But now you're behind bars serving time for doing something damaging to other people. Your my your karma is already served right there. I don't have to do anything. I'm washing my hands clean of it. I'm walking away from it. Yeah, I mean, and, and what more can you do? Because if it's you know, you have to consider yourself above right. all else, and you have to right. keep yourself safe. Otherwise, you're not going to be around to help other people. Right, and, and I could have went after him for restitution, but you know what? I was an idiot for handing him that money. I was a dumbass because I should have done my homework even more so. I sat with these three women and they all told me he was legit. Even one supposedly ran his background information through the military computers. And then after the fact, when I talked to her, she said, 
She goes, it's not the same person I was thinking of. I'm like, really? Holy, you know, you're just thinking in the back of your mind. Never again will I put myself in that position. It was a lesson I needed to learn. I should not have handed that kind of money and trust over to somebody. And I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, done, done, and done. No more. Move it on. You know, that's that's been a reoccurring theme throughout this uh, podcast series. When I've talked to people in the industry is make sure that you're vetting who you're working with, who you're putting your trust in. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a couple of models and it's the same thing. Like they're going to go on a shoot at a studio or somebody's house or whatever. You better know who you're shooting with. And, right. you know, when you're trusting your business to somebody, it's, you know, it's a, it's obviously equally as important because this is your future. You know, your life would be completely different if you would have, you know, found out that this guy was a fraud right away. And then you would have taken a completely different course of action. Right. But, but it's a lesson and you can't, you know, you can't beat yourself up over it anymore. You can go, okay, yeah. I've learned something very valuable and yep. everything I do going forward, I'm taking that with me, just like everything else you've, you've gone through. And he served, he's serving his karma right now for, for all the lies and the hurt that he did to other people. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't get any vindication for what he did to me, it doesn't really matter because now he has to serve a prison sentence. And the worst thing that's going to happen is he's not going to see his, his little baby girl grow up. He's going to miss eight years of her life. And those are important years when she's just a little baby right now. She's not even going to remember who he is. Well, I have honestly no sympathy for him, but I have, no, I don't I have either. it for her. I do too. You know, in the long run, maybe this is the thing that she needs to go through to create the person that she's going to be to learn that, you know, self-survival. Yep, because my ex, my ex-husband doesn't even know his firstborn son. My son is now 33, and when my first husband and I split up, my son was two and a half, and the last time my son saw his dad, he was five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he has he has no really recall of his dad. But you know, I tend to think that if we don't experience something, the the only people that feel sad about it are people that did experience it. Like I mean, I grew up with both yeah. of my parents, they're still alive. And so it might be sad for me to hear that a child grew up without a father. But at the same point, it's like somebody who was born without hearing. It's sad to see that they won't be able to experience music, for example, or really experience a movie the way that we do. But at the same point, that's what they know. They've learned how right. to adapt within that. So I really, I, I, I feel for her on one side, but on another side, I look at it as an opportunity. Absolutely. You know, and, and the greatest gift I actually got, even though I had my son at a young age, the greatest gift I have is the fact that I had that person and I raised an adult. I didn't raise a child. I raised a young adult because I wanted him to go out in that world and be successful, follow his heart, go after his dreams. And the fact that we actually pretty much grew up together because I was 17 when I had him. Right. We did so many cool things together. And if I had my daughter with me, I would have had two kids. And I'm not sure how that would have panned out. But the fact that I had my son, he was my motivating factor. No matter how much garbage and crap I had to endure, that was my motivating factor to pick myself up every day and just get in the game and do what you had to do because he didn't have anybody else. And, right. and he calls me as mad. I talk about this all the time and it's mother and dad. And he always said that I was more like a dad than a mom to him. So 
that to me is really cool. I may not have the male genitalia, but I think I look more on life a lot like a guy does. I don't really come from a maternal thing. I always thought of my son as, as my buddy, you know, he, I was always a good mom. I always did the discipline, but we always hung out and did cool stuff together. We raced cars. I mean, my God, my 45th birthday, him and I went out drag racing against each other. That's Who awesome. does that? Right. Who yeah. Does that? I mean, that is just like the coolest thing in the world to go down a quarter mile strip at, at almost a hundred miles an hour. And you look over out your passenger side and your son's racing his car against you down the quarter mile. That is just, oh, that is just like the coolest thing in the world. And meanwhile, I look at those pictures and I go, yeah, that's really cool, but I'd have to leave the house to do that. So probably not going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. You have some pretty cool experiences wandering around Vegas, though. I do. It's it's really the only thing I like to do outside the house. I mean, yeah, I like to go to a movie maybe once or twice a year. But, but honestly, if I'm not um, doing something on the creative side, that really means more to me. But I also can't sit in a chair 18 hours a day. I've got to get up and move around and... Uh, that's why it's one of the reasons I started doing the, the walks. And yeah, it is a little crazy here. The people watching is absolutely phenomenal. Well, see, now I've, I've got to get my butt out to Vegas and go on those people walks with you. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, I want to talk about something a little more lighthearted. Um, and, but let me just say, I'm very glad that you put the book out. Thank you for doing that. I oh. would never have guessed, even knowing you all these years, because we've known each other over 10 years now, I would have never guessed in all those years that this was your history, that this is what brought you to be the person that I love today. Um, I know that this book has touched a lot of people, whether, the, whether you hear about it or not, and don't get discouraged by people that don't do the reviews that don't do the, know. you know, the stars, because it doesn't mean that they didn't like it. It just means right. they, they just didn't want to go that far to do that. Um, sure. But I think you you probably grew a lot more, and I think you may not even realize, but you'll see over the course of the next few years how much this process has changed you. And I can't thank you enough for putting that out there for people to be inspired by and find that they do have their own strengths and that they can make decisions and that they can get out of horrible situations. That means a lot to hear that. <clears throat> getting me all choked up. Yeah, I, I mean, this woman is just such an inspiration to me because of not just the things that she's survived or been through. And I mean, there's always somebody that's been through worse, but that she had the strength to decide, I don't want this for my life. I don't want this for my child and find a way to get herself out of it, which is something that people unfortunately just don't seem to do a lot of times and it, it can get pretty ugly. So let that be an inspiration to you. Check out the book and thank you for joining us for this week's episode. We'll be back next week for part two with Robin. And thank you for listening to the Haskin Cast podcast. Please do leave a uh, review or at least a rating on whatever uh, channel that you're listening to. And uh, let's help get the word out so that we can help share more great information like Robin gave us today. Thanks, guys. See you next week.